Hello and welcome to Sonnetcast, William Shakespeare sonnets recited, revealed and relived. I am Sebastian Michael and this is Sonnet 9. Is it for fear to wet a widow's eye that thou consumest thyself in single life? Ah, if thou issueless shalt hap to die, the world will wail thee like a makeless wife. The world will be thy widow, and still weep that thou no form of thee hast left behind, when every private widow well may keep by children's eyes her husband's shape in mind. Look what an unthrift in the world doth spend, shifts but his place, for still the world enjoys it. But beauty's waste hath in the world an end, and kept unused, the user so destroys it. No love toward others in that bosom sits, that on himself such murderous shame commits. The multilayered and marvellously complex Sonnet 9 sets out with an unlikely supposition to make some strongly suggestive statements about the young man and his conduct, and introduces a whole new, massive, and massively important concept to these poems. But first of all, what does it actually mean? Is it for fear to wet a widow's eye that thou consumest thyself in single life? Is it because you are afraid to make a prospective widow cry that you use yourself up as a single man? The question is, of course, rhetorical. Shakespeare asks the young man whether possibly the actual reason why he isn't marrying is that he simply wants to spare a hypothetical widow who would be left behind after his death, her sadness, her tears. The use of the word consumed thyself is, however, once more quite suggestive. It evokes the idea of somebody eating or using themselves up, and once or twice before we had more than a bit of a hint that the poet may be admonishing the young man for not only using himself, whatever that might entail, but for abusing himself in a sexual way. Ah, if thou issueless shalt hap to die, the world will wail thee like a makeless wife. Ah, if you should happen to die without children, issueless, meaning without issue, in other words, childless, then the whole world will cry for you, wail thee, like a wife who doesn't have a husband, like a makeless wife. Makeless means without a mate in the matrimonial sense, and, of course, a wife without a husband, one might argue, is not a wife, but... The world will be thy widow, and still weep, that thou no form of thee hast left behind. Here comes the explanation. The whole world will be your widow, and still, meaning both forever and also in spite of having tried to prevent this from happening by never marrying, still cry over the fact that you have not left behind a likeness, or, as we would today perhaps venture, copy 
of yourself. Though this is not meant to be an identical copy, of course, because we're always talking about a child who can at best be an iteration of a parent. But this idea of the son being effectively a continuation of the young man has by now been well established. When every private widow well may keep by children's eyes her husband's shape in mind. And this when in fact every individual or personal widow will be able to remind herself of her deceased husband by looking at her children or perhaps more specifically by looking into her children's eyes. Now the use of the word private here is particularly interesting. We have noted before that anyone of high status in Shakespeare's world is almost by definition, a public or at least semi-public figure. And we have come to the conclusion that the young man whom these poems are addressed to clearly must have a fairly high social status. And so while the private here certainly stands to mean a widow who is an individual person as opposed to the metaphorical widow that is the world, it also juxtaposes this hypothetical person with a woman of status and thus with a potential person who would be widowed to this young man because he would almost certainly have to marry a woman of status. And even if he didn't, even if he married a woman of socially lower status, any woman he were to marry would immediately be raised in status close to his level simply by virtue of the fact that she is then his wife. What we've also had before is a similar case to this where the lovely gaze where every eye doth dwell was used to describe the young man's face. Gaze stood in for that which is in fact gazed on. Here now, the children's eyes are effectively standing in for the children themselves, and more specifically, for their faces. This, I would say, is most likely a more suitable reading than taking the eyes literally here and suggesting that a widow can keep her husband's shape in mind through looking into their children's eyes. But since we don't know for certain, we have to make a decision as to how we want to read this line. This happens, as we have noted before, every so often in William Shakespeare generally and particularly, of course, also in these sonnets. Look what an unthrift in the world doth spend. See what happens to what a wasteful person spends in the world. An unthrift is someone who is not thrifty, in other words, not mindful of how they spend their wealth. And we are reminded here of Sonnet 4, where the poet addressed the young man as an unthrifty loveliness. The sentence continues, shifts but his place, for still the world enjoys it. The money that has been spent by the wastrel will simply circulate and go from one person and place to another because the world that now has his money can always continue to enjoy it. Noteworthy here is that the his, as every so often in Shakespeare works, as its, referring to what the unthrifty person spends in the world, we would say shifts only its place. And it is worth bearing in mind in this context perhaps that money in Shakespeare's day is essentially coins. Cheques, 
electronic money, credit cards, payment cards, transfers, even banknotes really don't yet exist. It is coins that literally pass from one person and therefore place to another. But beauty's waste have in the world an end. And this is a wonderfully complex line which has several potential meanings and illustrates once again just how skillfully crafted these poems are. And we are only at number nine out of 154. Wasted beauty, by implication here, such as the young man's, eventually runs out. There is an end to it. That is the most simple and basic reading. And we know, of course, that the poet has told the young man on several occasions already that he is being wasteful with his beauty. So we can quite safely assume that it actually applies. But we were just reminded of Sonnet 4, where I, the poet, called you, the young man, an unthrifty loveliness, and asked, why do you spend upon thyself thy beauty's legacy? And there we got the impression that Shakespeare was coming very close to telling the young man to stop pleasuring himself and instead get on with it and make a woman pregnant. We also incidentally shied away somewhat from expressing it quite so crudely and directly, but here now is another insinuation that can't be quite ignored, because if we were to allow for beauty's waste to have the additional meaning of that which the beauty, the young man, is physically wasting, his procreation potential, in other words his semen, then we can also allow for have in the world an end to mean has a purpose in the world, as in, to what end do you use this procreation potential of yours? Why, to make children, of course. And this reading is somewhat corroborated by how the line continues. And kept unused, the user so destroys it. On the surface, much as we would expect, this means and the person who should be using his beauty to attract a suitable wife, by not doing so and thus keeping this beauty unused, eventually destroys it by letting it go to waste and remaining childless. On the subsidiary level, though, and entirely congruent with what has gone before, we can also understand but the user, as in self-abuser, by keeping his effusions unused, by not putting them to their original purpose, which is to make a woman pregnant, destroys them, turning them into waste. And then the final couplet, which comes along surprisingly strong, no love toward others in that bosom sits, that on himself such murderous shame commits. No love can be residing in the heart of someone who commits such a shameful deed on himself. And again, we have multiple layers. Murderous shame is by many editors interpreted as shameful murder. In other words, an inversion of the adjective and the noun. In the sentence as it is written, murderous is the adjective and shame is the noun. And many people think it should be the other way round. How useful this reading is, is debatable because it makes it necessary to accept the destruction of beauty as a type of murder. Whereas the on himself 
once again puts forward the idea of an act that the young man commits directly, as the words suggest, on himself. And it is murderous because it does lead to the children that should be born to him never being conceived, but also because it comes close to a deadly sin, namely lust, and lust that you commit on yourself as a sin, if you are biblically minded, is, of course, again, masturbation. But what exactly has love got to do with it? Got to do with it? So, superficially, this supremely suggestive sonnet can be read as yet another iteration of the principal thought that runs through all the procreation sonnets. The young man, by not having children, is wasting his beauty. The deployment of the vocabulary, though, is as precise as it is laden with undertones that, especially when read in the context of the other instances so far where the poet has used the same words, are quite obviously sexual. Consumed thyself and murderous shame that somebody commits on himself are the strongest contenders, but beauty's waste, too, has its potential to evoke additional shades of meaning. It is absolutely worth reiterating, though, that we may be reading more into these sonnets than the writer intended. How likely, though, is this to be the case? I would argue not all that likely. Let us remind ourselves what these first seventeen sonnets do. They tell a young man to produce a child. We've so far learnt a few things about the young man, which we will summarise again soon, but perhaps not here since we did so recently. And this sonnet itself doesn't tell us anything new about him. But certainly, the impression we are getting is of a fairly headstrong, somewhat self-obsessed, on all accounts beautiful and sexually active young man. And the only way in Shakespeare's day you can produce a child is by having sex. So if sex features in these sonnets by being alluded to, even referred to, if the poet appears to observe that the young man, in order to have a child, really has to start putting his sexual activity to a more targeted use than he seems to be doing, then none of this needs to either surprise or scandalise us. We have noted before how viscerally lives are lived in Elizabethan England, and it is also worth noting that neither Shakespeare nor his contemporaries are all that squeamish about sex. No society in which men wear codpieces can be. And so possibly one of the most interesting things that Sonnet 9 does is remind us that we in our society, and I'm talking quite specifically about Britain, Western Europe and North America in the third decade of the 21st century, are probably more prudish, more moralistic, more, ironically, worked up and sensitive about the earthy, fleshy, raunchy sexiness of sex than Shakespeare, his young man and their contemporaries were. And indeed, as we are soon to find out, about sexuality. 
but that hasn't really come into play yet and we do want to go by what the words themselves tell us in these sonnets both case by case and cumulatively and so talking about sexuality and gender at this point would be jumping the gun by several blows but one more thing seems to occur and this Again, may or may not be based in fact, it is but an impression. It is nevertheless an impression, and if it were to turn out to be correct, it would be significant enough. I, the poet, William Shakespeare, seem to be getting more daring, more bold. Whether that's because I'm getting bored with my task, or whether it is that I'm getting to know the young man, we don't know, but there is one critical, crucial, categorically important word that we haven't even mentioned yet, and it features here for the first time in this sequence. Love. No love toward others in that bosom sits, I say, and this is the first time in this, the traditionally accepted, originally published sequence, that we get the word love. Nine sonnets in, in the penultimate line. Is this significant? Of course it is. If nothing else, the fact alone that it has taken the poet this long to introduce the concept of love is telling. So far, we've had a lovely April in Sonnet 3. We've had the young man addressed as an unthrifty loveliness in Sonnet 4. And in Sonnet 5, he became, by an intriguing poetic device, the lovely gaze where every eye doth dwell. But nobody has mentioned love before. Marriage? Yes. Making children? Yes. Using your beauty to the right purpose? Yes. Wasting your beauty? Absolutely. But love? This is the first time we hear of it, and so, of course, we are entitled to ask the Tina Turner question, just what exactly has love got to do with it all? For the poet? For the young man? For the young man's potential wife and mother of his still, as yet, potential children? This sonnet does not tell us but we stand a fair chance of finding out more as we continue our journey. And so I hope you will join me again here on SonnetCast as we recite, reveal and relive the sonnets of William Shakespeare.